Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. All right, hey, if you guys got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Uh, and while you guys are flipping over to Luke chapter 23, uh, back in 2017, I signed the year before with the Royals and I was out in my first uh, spring training in Surprise, Arizona. And so if you've, uh, if you've never been to Surprise, Arizona, uh, don't. It's not, <laughs> there's not much to see in Surprise. Seth, tell him, man, like there ain't a whole lot to see in Surprise, Arizona. But one of the things Surprise has, uh, and like, let me, let me probably like, here in Georgia, we got birds, right? Like we've got, we've got red birds and blue birds and we go dove hunt. We've got like little birds. Surprise Arizona has pigeons and not like, like we got pigeons here too, but these pigeons in Surprise Arizona, they look like house cats with wings. Like they are the biggest pterodactyl looking bird you've ever seen. And it's not like just two or three kind of at a time, but they like flock in herds. And so all in, in Surprise Arizona, there's no trees, there's no bushes, there's nowhere for these birds to go. So they're just like hanging out in the middle of the outfield of our fields. And they're just by the dozens and the dozens. And so one day we were out during batting practice and I was standing out in the outfield shagging balls and there was just this herd of pigeons off to the side and foul ground of our field. And so a ball gets hit to me and, and I pick the ball up and instead of throwing it in, like I look down at the ball and I, I look over that herd of pigeons and I thought, well, let's just see what happens, right? Like, it's going to be fun. There's nothing else. I mean, we're standing out here for hours. It's hot, you know? So I grabbed the ball and I was like, let's just see. So I throw this ball over to this this flock of pigeons, and one of these birds completely overreacted. Like it, it starts flailing around, flapping its wings, spinning in circles, and, and eventually hobbles and walks over to our bullpen mound and lays down. So I walk over to this bird, and I'm saying, I was like, there's no way. There's no, so anyway, so I walk over and I look down at this bird, and y'all, sure as dead's ever been, this bird is laying there on our bullpen mound dead. And I thought, what are we going to do with this huge bird? And I was looking down. I was like, did that bird deserve to die? Heck no. Man, like he's minding his own business. He's an innocent, pure little bird, right? But it was the reckless decision that I made with that ball that led to this poor little bird's death. And I, and I tell that story because all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout Scripture, we see this same thing kind of taking place. We see this pattern of innocent animals being killed because of the reckless and the sinful decisions of man. And so we see that all throughout the Old Testament, we'll talk here more in just a little bit, but the innocence and the death of an innocent animal, animal is somehow tied to the decisions and the sin of man. And this leads us to Luke chapter 23, which is going to be the ultimate and the final blood sacrifice that was ever needed and required. Three things I want us to look at. Here's kind of the outline for the morning if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to look at what is sin. Like for us to, before we can understand the weightiness and before we can understand the importance of the cross, we've got to understand what sin really is. Number two, why were sacrifices needed? Uh, we see again all in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament some, we see this pattern of, of animal sacrifices for the atonement of sin. Why? Like that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us, which will ultimately lead us to number three, the importance of the cross. And guys, like this, man, studying this passage this morning, in all of Scripture, everything from the Old Testament through the New Testament all the law, all the prophets, all the gospels hinge on this one passage that we're going to go over today and then what dad will touch on next week. 
The entirety of history of mankind has pointed to this occasion that we're going to read about and study this morning. So so if we don't understand the weightiness and the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ, nothing else we do in life will matter. That if we don't understand the weightiness and the importance and just the magnitude of the cross of Jesus, we are wasting our time coming into a church. This is a building and that's about it. And so I want us to pray this morning because my heart and my prayer, and guys, like as I've studied through this, I've thought, man, like I feel so underqualified to teach this word this morning. Because what sinful man has the right to come and preach and try to teach on the cross of Jesus? Like how many of us really could sit here and say, man, I fully understand the weightiness of the cross. Because if you know, then please come and take my spot and I'll listen to you. But in studying through this, just like really wrestling, I was like, Holy Spirit, like I don't, man, like I'm, I'm trying. And I've put my faith in this and I, and I believe that what Jesus did uh, is what brings salvation for our souls and brings life everlasting. But to really understand the weightiness is something that, man, I've been wrestling with for the last couple of weeks. And I want to pray this morning that before we get into it, that the Holy Spirit would just bestow upon us the wisdom and the ability to understand this word. Because listen to me, guys, this is the most important thing that we will ever come to believe. This passage this morning is the fundamentally most important passage in Scripture that all other things hinge on. And we must understand this. We must be overcome with the weightiness of the gospel and the good news of Jesus on the cross. So will you pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, we give you full, full freedom. Not that you need our permission, but we ask that you will come and fill this place, that you'll suppress and silence any distractions. God, if we come in with any preconceived ideas or prideful claims of thinking that we know and understand the gospel and the the cross, God, will you please just teach us something new? Help us to maybe understand for the first time or remind us if we've forgotten or make clear things that have seemed hazy. God, will you speak through me, Lord? I yield to you, man, as your word says it comes down and it does not return void. So will as we open up your scripture, will it speak and not return void in our lives or produce a fruitfulness that leads us to look more like you, Jesus. Amen. I have number one, but what was we're getting into before we get to the cross, like I said, we need to understand like what is sin? Right? We, we throw that word around a lot, like we're in church, it's like I'm a sinner saved by grace, or man, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. We can kind of throw that sin word around, but can we really put a pin on what is sin? Right? And in its simplest form, sin means to fail or to miss the goal. So it would be used a term as like a marksman, either like a marksman who had a slingshot or an archer. And to aim at a target and to miss that target or to miss the goal of the target would be to sin. And Tim Mackey is one of the founders of the Bible Project. I love it. He says it this way. He says that sin is a failure to love God and to love others with the honor that they deserve. So so the goal that we miss or, or the target that we have failed to hit is a failure to fully love God and to fully love people the way that they deserve. 
Jesus will say, like when he's asked and he's challenged by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they'll, they'll say, hey man, like what's, what's the most important law? Like of all the things that we need to know, what's the most important one? And Jesus will say, of all the 613 laws and commandments and things that I've spoken to you, the most important two for you to know is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus will say that all the other commandments, anything that you fall short on, anything that falls under the umbrella of honoring God is to first and foremost love God fully with all your heart and to see somebody else as more important and love them more than yourself. And so the idea of sin for us, which is the broad umbrella that we'll, we'll funnel down, is sin is a failure to fully and wholeheartedly love and serve God. And it is a failure to fully love and honor people the way that God intended us to. So what, what, how, how do we funnel that down then? Where do we look? How, how do we know what sin is? The Word of God, the Bible, is full of passages that speak very clearly to what is sin and what is not. So we're going to kind of, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of take like a little bit of a self-assessment this morning. Okay? We're going to take a little bit of a test. But here's the deal. Like most tests, anybody ever take a test, you're like, man, I missed like half of those questions. Or maybe not half. I missed like three quarters of those questions. Uh, and, and you can still miss a bunch and get a decent grade. You know what I'm saying? Some of us, we were C students through college, mainly because we didn't ever go to class. But it's like if I get just enough right, we can still pass. In this test, if you miss one, you miss them all. Okay? So we're just going to. Us caches, we can usually make it halfway through a test before we're for sure out. Uh, we'll see if we can make it halfway through this one. All right, number one, the, the, the first thing the Bible will say, what is sin? Evil thoughts. Let's go and pause there. Anybody else already out? Like, <laughs> well, I didn't take long. Evil thoughts. Anybody been ever sitting at a red light and that car, that light turns green and that car doesn't go? The kind of wicked thoughts that goes through y'all's heads, guys, because that car didn't go? Right? Anybody not raise your hand for evil thoughts? Anybody think my thoughts are pretty good? It's good. It's good. We're not dealing with any liars this morning because that's a sin too. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Here's what the Bible has to say. What is sin? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. <laughs> Sounds like we're reading the side effects of a heart pressure medicine, isn't it? <laughs> The, the, the Bible says that, like, look, to miss the mark, to sin, to fall under the failure of sin for your life is to fall under any one of these. And I promise you, there's not one of us that read through that list and thinks, man, my slate's clean. And Scripture says to fail in one of those is to fail in all of them. You are guilty all the same. No matter which one of those categories, you'd say, that's me. And for some of us, we probably check that list pretty clean. Jesus will then say in Mark chapter 7, he says, all of these things... He said they come from within us and they will defile the person. He said all of these things. Man, I love lover of money, lover of self, pride, arrogance, 
sexual immorality, drunkenness, the perversion of life, slander, gossip, deceiving. He says all of these things, like, man, like these are the things that come within us. And when we allow them to, to take root within our heart, he says they defile us and make us therefore guilty once and for all of sin. And we so often deceive ourselves and allow Satan to believe uh, or speak to us to believe the lie that, man, maybe my sin just isn't that bad. Like, man, like maybe it's, maybe it's not as bad as, as somebody else's vice. Man, like it's not hurting anybody. It's really not that big of a deal. And we fall into this pattern and we fall into this belief of allowing Satan to whisper the lies into your ear that says, man, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. And God says in Genesis 4, 7, this is God speaking. He says, you need to know sin is crouching at the door. And he says, man, it's desires for you. But you must master it. It's this picture is like when you wake up each day and when you go to leave your house, you need to know that you live in a world where sin is crouching at the door. Like a ravaging animal that is just sitting there waiting for you to come outside because it can't wait to eat your lunch. It says, man, I can't wait for you to walk outside because the desires of your flesh, the lies of the world, the deceptions of Satan that says this is what will satisfy you. This is what will bring you peace. This is what will make you happy. It says, man, it's just crouched over and it can't wait for you to wake up in the morning and devour you. And God will say, you've got to learn how to master your desires. Otherwise, they lead to death and it will kill you. Some of you guys may sit here this morning like, man, I know that to be all too well. I've given in to that desire. I've given into that temptation. Or I've given into that addiction. And I've seen the kind of devastation it brought my marriage. Man, I've seen the kind of devastation it's bringing to a child. I've seen what it's done to family and friends around me. You know all too well the repercussions of allowing sin to creep out the door and you not know how to master it. Paul will write in the gospel or in his letter, so say, man, like, you've got to flee from these things. Like you've got to turn around and run your butt so fast away from it because if you don't, man, it's sitting there and it can't wait for you to walk out unequipped, unprepared to face it, and it will tear you up. God says, you've got to learn how to master your cravings. You've got to learn how to master your sin. So why sacrifices? If this is what sin is, then, then what's this whole reason for sacrifices? Leviticus 17, it says, this is God speaking again. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. One commentator on this passage will say it this way. He'll say that by means of the life of the animal, it is by the means of the life of the animal which ransoms the life of the offerer for the deserved judgment of the Lord. So, so this, this idea of so why sacrifice, this is what sin is, realizing that once we have fallen captive to one of them, we've fallen captive to all of them. And so sacrifices, the blood sacrifice, as an animal would be brought in its uh, throat slit and blood pouring out, what Leviticus tells us is God saying, he's like, hey man, sin always requires death. Like there's no sinning and skirting around death. The decisions that you make against God, missing the goal, missing the target is sin. The payment for that has been 
death. And so God in his great mercy and in his love for you would allow an innocent animal, pure, without blemish, totally clean, a picture of Jesus and the Savior to come. God would allow that animal to be brought forth and sacrificed. And as the blood spilled out, and as death came, and as the blood washed over the altar, God would look down from heaven. He would say, I am allowing that blood to be a temporary ransom for the sin of your life. And this pattern will be done over and over and over again. And because, hear me, of God's great mercy for you, he would allow an animal to be brought. And as that animal's blood spilled, it was to remind the sacrificer of a few things. Number one, it was to remind the sacrificer of the, uh, excuse me, it was to remind the sacrifice of the people of life and death. This idea of that, man, God created us in the garden to live a life of abundance and a life with him. And sin fractured that relationship with God. And so the atonement for that sin was blood to be spilled. So as a sacrificer would watch the blood spill out, it's to remind us that, man, my decisions bring forth death and destruction. My sin, my habits, my addictions, those things, the consequences brings forth death. Number two, we don't have time to get into this much, but in Exodus we see that before the Israelites were freed from slavery, the last of the plagues, the last of the judgments from God was for the Israelites to go and to sacrifice the lamb and they were to put the blood of the lamb across the doorpost so that when the angel of death came through Egypt, when it came across a house who had covered their house in the sacrificial blood, the angel would pass over it. So the sacrificial blood was to remind God's people that blood brings freedom. That bloodshed leads to freedom. And finally, the third thing would be that the sacrifice would cost the sacrificer something. Now, they didn't walk around with like a, like a pocket and a wallet full of money. But like their, their, their uh, financial and economic state, so to speak, would have been in like their herds. It would have been in their possessions. And so for somebody to have to go take their choice lamb or their choice oxen to go and have it sacrificed to pay for their sins, like, man, that would cost that dude something. Like he lost some dollars, so to speak, in the sacrifice. And so we see through the Old Testament, like the only reason and the only way that sin could ever be appeased for, the only way that God would ever withhold his wrath and judgment from man was to say, you've got to give me an offering of a sacrifice. And when that blood spills, it's to remind you of death, it's to remind you that blood leads to freedom and it's costly. And each time the sacrificer would, would cut the throat of that animal and the blood would be spilling out, man, that sacrificer was to look down at that animal and think, man, like that deserves to be me. Like, like as the life is leaving such an animal, as this per, pure, perfect, like has done nothing wrong, it's not the animal's fault that it has to suffer for me. But as I watch the suffering blood spill out of the sacrifice, I am to be reminded and to look down and think, gosh, man, I deserve to be the one in that place. That's what the sacrificial system was in place for. It was a reminder to look at sin so serious. And we're going to get to the cross here in a few minutes. But I think before we can really understand the importance of the cross, like we've got to understand how serious we've got to take sin. 
Like we've got to understand that the weight of our decisions is a big deal. That, that, that it's not just this mark to say like, man, it's the weekend. Like I've been working hard all week. Like I deserve to go blow off some steam and go out and drink with my buddies. I deserve to go and, and be able to slander and gossip in my girl time around wine. I deserve to be able to go and, and chase after money and, and chase the God of success. I deserve that kind of stuff. And if you've fallen into that trap, like hear me say, like that is a lie from Satan. That is Satan crouching down at your door saying, man, I can't wait to devour you again today. That before we can understand the power and the importance of the cross, I mean, we've got to understand that our sin is to be taken, or taken so seriously, guys. That it is not a light matter. It is not something that we can just brush off and think, ah, oh, maybe I'll deal with it tomorrow. It is to be taken so serious. Paul will write in Romans chapter 6. He just says, man, for the wages of sin is death. <laughs> Meaning the cost, the price to be paid for your sin is death. And so again, we see this pattern all throughout scripture of innocent, pure, blameless animals. God's saying, man, I'm going to allow my wrath to be poured out over that as a temporary ransom for your sin. Never fully able to suffice, but a temporary ransom. Which leads us now to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in verse 26 this morning. Before we get to this passage, like Luke and, and some other gospels, they, they, they allude to this idea of like Jesus was scourged before carrying the cross. If you read some of the other gospel accounts, this idea of being scourged is one little word that carries unbelievable weight with it. And so as Jesus, he is uh, arrested, he's, he's being put on trial now from uh, the Jewish leaders in the area. They're threatened by him. They don't like the fact that he's swaying people's opinion. They don't like that he's coming in with a different message than what they had. Their pride is hurt. And so they come and they begin to attack Jesus and they put him on trial and they're making all these false accusations and they're making all these claims and lies about him. And Jesus stands there silent. He says, I have nothing that I need to defend myself for. I have nothing I need to prove. And so they're, they're throwing these insults, they're mocking him, they're making these claims and they come to Pilate. They say, man, we want to crucify this dude, we want him dead. Pilate goes back and he assesses Jesus and he, he, he puts him on trial, so to speak. And he comes back and he's like, man, there's nothing that this guy has done wrong. The people, sinful, full of pride, full of arrogance. And no, we want this dude dead, man. He's going against, he's threatening us. He's threatening our systems. He's threatening our authority. We want this guy dead. Pilate basically said, man, I washed my hands of him. You guys can go and do what you want. But before he would release him to be crucified, it says that he was scourged. And this idea of being scourged was Jesus would be taken out and he would have his hands bound kind of over a stone. They'd strip him down naked where he had nothing on and he'd be bound leaning over this rock, back and flesh fully exposed. And they would take these whips of these long leather straps and intertwined in the leather would have been busted up pieces of pottery or bones and glass. And as Jesus would lay there uh, crouched over bound, the soldiers would begin to whip this leather whip into the flesh of Jesus. And as the bones and as the glass and as the pottery would strike the flesh, it would embed itself into the flesh. 
And the soldiers would then whip the, or rip the whip back. And as they did, then the flesh, man, the skin and the organs that were exposed would come ripping off of the criminal. And they would do it over and over and over again until Jesus' body was mangled and beaten beyond recognize, uh, being recognizable. When we get to chapter 23 and 26, beaten almost to the point of death. They said sometimes the Romans would beat them so bad that they wouldn't even make it to the cross because they would just kill them by the amount of whips that they would give the criminal. Jesus barely hanging on with his life. Verse 26 says, And they led him away, and they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. You can imagine, Jesus is beaten, his bones and, and everything showing. He doesn't have any strength. He doesn't have the ability to carry this wooden beam. So they grab this guy Simon and they say, Hey, man, you're going to carry this beam. So Simon is carrying the, 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 the cross beam with Jesus and it says, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things and the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Son of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. And he looked and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out in a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, which would have been a sign of repentance. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Charles Spurgeon will write, he says, you need not weep over the crucifixion, but weep over your transgressions. For your sins nailed the Redeemer to the accursed tree. To weep over a dying Savior is to lament the remedy. It were wiser to bewail the disease. Spurgeon will write and he'll say, don't weep over the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Don't weep and mourn over the fact that Jesus was bound and beaten beyond anything that we could ever fathom. Don't weep and mourn because Jesus was nailed to a cross, which would have been the Romans' way of of killing a terrorist. Don't weep for the fact that he was mocked. Don't weep over the fact that he had nails driven through his wrists and his feet and that he suffocated. Don't weep over the fact of the immense love that Jesus poured out to save you. Spurgeon said, rather, it would be so much wiser of you to weep and to wail over your sins and your transgressions, for that is what nailed our Savior to that tree. It is the weightiness that we must understand that Jesus did not die there. He wasn't finished there, but he rose, or he did die, he died, but he rose from the grave. He didn't stay there. But that is, in our place, the punishment that we rightfully deserved from God, Jesus bore on the cross. And Spurgeon will say, he's like, man, don't, don't mourn for that. Because he rose and he is alive and he is the hope of salvation that we have to return to the Father one day. It'd be wiser of you to take an assessment of your life and to wail over the decisions of sin that we make each day. That would be wise decision for us to make today. So why, why, why did this matter? How is Jesus' sacrifice the one that would appease. And I just think it's just beautiful that Jesus, being fully God and fully human, came clothed in flesh. He was the only man to ever live that perfectly loved God and loved people. Man, his heart was compassion. His heart was healing. His heart was to serve. His heart was to minister. He said, I only do what I hear the Father tell me to do and see the Father do. Jesus lived a perfect life, which going back to uh, the beginning means that he fully loved God and loved people without fault. He was the only man that ever fully loved God to the fullest. He's the only man that fully loved man with no selfish ambitions or no desires of selfishness wrapped around it. He fully, fully loved God and loved people, therefore was without sin. And with every perfect, unblemished lamb, that was slit and killed for the payment of sin. They were a picture pointing to the only real perfect lamb that would one day lay down his life for you. Peter will put it this way in 1 Peter 2. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Our sin is deserving of death. And I know, I mean, like, like I know that we don't take sin all that seriously because we have diluted down and nullified the sacrifice of Jesus to showing up for church for an hour on a Sunday and thinking that that's enough. We, we have diluted the sacrifice of Jesus down and say, man, if I just come to church, if I just do a couple good things throughout the week, maybe I'll throw some dollars in the plate, then, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn my way somehow to Jesus. And we make so little, guys, of the one who gave his life for you. 
And if we took sin serious, man, like it would drive us to our knees and just begging God and saying, Lord, like I need you to help me understand more and more and more why what you did is so important. Like if I believe, Jesus, that the sacrifice you made once and for all, being perfect, is the only blood, the final sacrifice that I would have to pay, it would force me to live my life differently. Like how do we read this, guys, and say, that's the man I'm following, and then have no change in our life. If you grew up in a church that said, man, as long as you pray a prayer and sign a card, you're good, and that there's nothing else required of you after, I'm sorry because that is a lie from hell. Satan would love to work his way into the church and say, maybe I can convince these people to write a date on a card and that they're going to heaven and that nothing else has to change in their life. Man, he's winning in the church. But if we would look at our sin and say, man, because of what Jesus did, I've got to change my life. Like something has to change. When I said yes to marrying my wife, Grace, I didn't just say, hey, I'm marrying this woman said yes to her one day at the altar of a church and then kept going back living life the way I did before I got married. Like to marry my wife, I mean, I've got to start making decisions that align with being married to this woman. I'm going to start living with her. I'm not dating anybody else. I'm going to serve her. My finances go to her. My protection goes to her. My time goes to her. For me to say I married her and have no change of life, people would look at you and say you are a fool because you are not really married. And somehow we believe that to say yes to Jesus means I don't have to change anything about my life. I can keep living the way that I did before I said yes to Jesus. And in doing so, we blaspheme his name. We make very little of the sacrifice of Jesus. There must be a change in the trajectory of our life to say yes to the sacrifice that he made. You no longer are owed to pay the sacrificial price of sin. Your life, you deserve, I deserve to be nailed on that middle cross. One of those criminals looked and says, man, who are you? Why don't you save us all? The other one looked and said, man, don't you get it? Like, man, we're receiving the same punishment as this guy, and we deserve it. Not him, we deserve it. And without the cross and the death of Jesus, we deserve to be the one scourged over that stone and nailed to that middle cross. That is what you deserve. But God in his grace and mercy and love for you said, I will bear all of that on me. You can't do it on your own. Man, I love works. Like, I think if Catholicism was the way to heaven, it makes more sense to me. Right? Like for me to go and check off a list and do some things and, and earn it like the way that I'm wired, that makes sense. I could do that. Jesus says, there ain't nothing you can do. There's no amount of works. There is no nothing in your life that you could ever do to satisfy the payment of sin that your decisions deserve. And in his great love and in his great mercy, On the cross, as Jesus is being nailed, as he's being mocked, as he's been beaten, Jesus looks down and he says, Father, forgive them for they just don't know what they're doing. And hear me say, if you walk in here this morning, and I've talked to guys where it's like, man, I can't come to church. God will just strike me dead if I walk through those doors. Man, to see the heart of Jesus is that those that literally were nailing him to the cross, he looks down and says, Father, forgive them, for I love them too. Those that have 
beat me and mocked me. Forgive them, God. They don't get it. They don't understand. Father, forgive them. If you come in here this morning or if you know somebody like that, it's like, man, how could, I, how could I ever come to church? How could I ever come to God? He didn't want to hear from me. Anybody ever been there, man? Like you ran from God for so long, you thought, why would I even pray? God doesn't give a rip what I got to say to him. Jesus looks at it and says, no, man, forgive them, Lord. Father, forgive them. David Guzik says that the Father, he set upon Jesus all the guilt and the wrath of our, uh, excuse me, Jesus, all the guilt and the wrath our sins deserved, and he bore it in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of, God's father, uh, of the Father's fury. He did it so that we would not have to drink of that cup. And Tony Evans will say that you no longer need the Old Testament sacrificial system. You only need Jesus and faith in his work. This is an unbelievable picture, this little bit that we can breeze over. It says that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And that's such an important piece because in the temple of that day, there was the holy place and then there was the holiest of holy places where the presence of God literally dwelt. And there was this curtain that was placed up between the two because no man could enter into the most holy place with God. Once a year, the high priest fully cleansed, going through this purification ritual, man, just to be made as clean as he humanly possibly could be under the commandments of God, was allowed to enter into God's presence and make a sacrifice and atonement for Israel's sins. And as Jesus is dying, it says from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, God from heaven tore that curtain in half, uh, tore that curtain in half and busted it wide open. Of this picture of saying the final blood sacrifice has been paid. You no longer need this curtain to separate me. Like my presence is no longer separated from you, but because of the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus, I am now going to bestow and pour out my spirit on all of you. You don't got to keep coming to the temple. You don't have to keep bringing me your sacrifices anymore. All I want from you is your surrender. And you can come boldly into the throne room of God. That the Father loves you so much that the curtain ripped in half because he says, man, I want my presence available to all of my children. And there's finally been a sacrifice given that is sufficient enough to pay for the decisions of sin that you make. And it is only because of the decision of Jesus that we have any hope in coming and knowing the Father. And as he sat there, he said, Father, forgive them. He has such mercy for us as his children because he knows we could never pay for that on our own. There was no amount of lambs to ever be sacrificed that would fully suffice the cost of sin. Nick and Teresa, if you guys want to head up. We've got to see, guys, that to follow Jesus is so much more than just coming to church. Like, this is important. We come to worship together. We come because Scripture says, man, like, preach the word, submit to God's word, teach the word. We need community. 
But to follow Jesus isn't about a church service, man. To follow Jesus is to recognize my sin is deserving of God's almighty, powerful, I can't bear the weight of it, wrath to be poured out over me. And to follow Jesus is to receive with thankfulness and gratitude on our knees and humility to thank the Father for his sacrifice. And to say, Jesus, I surrender and submit to that. I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness and strength each day. Because I know sin is crouching at my door tomorrow morning the same way it was today. And matter of fact, I bet if I walk outside after dinner, it's going to be sitting there waiting again. And I know that Satan and sin have full reign and they're running rampant in this world. I've got to surrender to you, Jesus, and ask for your strength and your forgiveness in my life. To follow Jesus is to change the trajectory of your life. It is to go from making X decisions to Y decisions. I sit down with high school kids. I've been discipling high school kids for years now, and I've got some that are uh, graduated and, and in college and about to get married, and I've been able to see them grow into young men. And sitting back still with a handful of them, we'll come back and we'll talk. Where are you? How you been? And for some of these guys, it's like, man, I'm, these are the decisions I'm making. And to try to tell them and let them see, like, man, like, you've got to run from that stuff. But at the same time, if you have nothing you're running to, then you have no reason to run from. So, so, so if I'm stuck over here in a place uh, or a pattern of sin that is bringing destruction, and I have nothing that I'm running to, then I'm going to stay stuck over here all the time. We talk about the staff, like if a high school kid is sleeping with his girlfriend and we say, hey man, quit sleeping with your girlfriend or hey man, quit drinking or hey man, quit cussing. Why? The kid has no understanding or reason of where to run to. And so we've got to understand, like, they're like, no, we've got somewhere we're running to. I've got somewhere where I can point people and say, hey man, you see the destruction of your life? I found the one that brought peace and healing to mine. And if we can point them in where to run from, we've got somewhere to flee to. And we've got to understand the weightiness of our decisions and realize also, like, I've got to know where I'm running to. And I've got to be quick day in and day out to run back to the cross of Jesus. No lamb would ever sufficiently cover the cost of our sin. God looks down in this picture through Jesus and he says, man, I'll go. Man, I love my kids so much. I'll go be the ransom. I'll allow my body to be beat. I'll allow my blood to be shed because I love you. God wants you to live a life of abundance and joy with him. We see in the Eden again from, from Adam and Eve. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, man, there's life. There's flourishing. There's abundance here. But when you decide to not trust me, when you decide to make decisions to go your own way, man, it brings death and it brings destruction. That was never God's intention for us. But to come back to the cross of Jesus is to be reunited with the Father again. There's probably two groups of us this morning. One of us may be the group that, that comes in here and you've been following Jesus for a while and you just need a reminder. You just need to be reminded of the weightiness of sin. You need to be reminded that, man, I just need to come up to the altar. I need to come up and to one of the prayer parts. I just got to confess some stuff in my life. I need to get, I need to get made right again. <laughs> I need to receive the, the forgiveness of Jesus 
Man, like this, this, this idea of uh, this pattern of following Jesus is not a, man, like once I, I just sign the card again and I'm good. But it is this daily decision of saying, I have got to choose to die to myself. Man, I have jacked it up all the time. I am continuously having to run back and say, God, man, I need to receive your forgiveness again. I repent. I, I, I'm sorry. And I love, like, Ravi Zacharias, he, he gave this analogy one time. He said, man, it's kind of like a, a kid who, who takes his, his little pad of, of paper into school, and he sits back there, and he scribbles on it and makes a mess. And when it comes time to do the schoolwork, the little kid's got to kind of shamefully walk his head up to the teacher and give him the slate of paper and say, man, man I've scribbled on this one. The teacher grabs it and gives him a new piece, and he says, this is clean. Go and do better today, my child. And the kid goes and sits back down the next day and he scribbles on it and he makes a mess and it's time to do his work. And he walks up to the teacher and he gives it. And the teacher smiles and gives him a clean slate and says, go today, do better, my child. And for some of us, man, we just need to, we need to bring that slate up to Jesus and say, man, I've, I've scribbled on this one. <laughs> I've made a mess of it. And the love of the Father through Jesus is that, man, I'll wash it clean. Here's a clean slate, Go. Go, sin no more, do better again, my child, and knowing that the Father's loving embrace is to clean that each time we bring it to him. Second group of people, maybe you come in here today and it's like, man, I don't know anything of the cross of Jesus. I don't know anything of surrendering to him. But you walk in here, you know the weightiness of that sin just devouring you each day. You know all too well carrying around the guilt and the shame of the destructive decisions that you've made. And you may come in here today, and I want to tell you today, you can walk out of this place in freedom. You can walk out of this room today fully united back to the Father with that clean slate that your soul is longing for, that this world will never give you. And so if you find yourself in that second group, I want to pray with you this morning. And if you would say, like, man, I want to surrender and give my life to this Jesus, you could close your eyes and pray something like this, Jesus. I recognize that I have lived my life for myself and I am living in sin that is causing destruction in my life and others. I recognize that there is no amount of good works, there's no amount of cleaning up that I could ever do to be right with you. I recognize that I am in need of a savior. And today, Jesus, I choose to receive your forgiveness and surrender to you as Lord over my life. I choose to say yes to you and no to the things of this world. Will you strengthen me, Lord, as I desire to follow you from this day forward?